Hey, my name is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. We're doing live streamed video interviews all week long at Agile 2017. So if you don't get the chance to be here, you can still get a sense of some of the things that are happening. So different thought leaders that are speaking, people that have run the event have come by. And right now, Laura Powers, who is fresh out of therapy. Fresh out of therapy. <laughs> so we should clarify. So before we talk about your sessions, yes. you were just downstairs yes. in the Agile therapy lounge. Lounge. And what is that? So this is an experiment, I believe, the brainchild of Chris Lee. And the idea is for folks who are new to... It's Paul. It's Paul, not Chris. <laughs> okay, so brainchild of Paul. Um, <laughs> the idea is for people who are new to Agile to have a chance to sit down with someone on a particular topic with a, or maybe a, a specific question right. and get some advice, get some therapy uh, on whatever Agile topic they want and um, different people were asked to cover different areas and I have to, today was the very beginning of this. It was the okay. inaugural therapy sessions and it was a little slow to start out with and so we offered, the therapists offered therapy to one another, which is also That's very good. also important. Yes. Yeah, you gotta take care of each other. And then we started having so much fun that I think we were started to uh, attract some folks in. Okay. And it was really interesting to kind of see what's on the mind of people who are new to Agile, new to Agile, um, Agile Alliance and what were they thinking about. Yeah. And there were some common themes in terms of trying to figure out, uh, one theme that I saw in speaking with six or seven folks was uh, the middle managers, where do they fit into Agile and yeah. how do we help them succeed or at least not be an impediment to their teams. Yeah. And this was across uh, someone who works in the government, a couple of people at startups and a couple of people at Fortune 100 companies all were wanted to talk about uh, the role of managers, the role of middle managers in particular in okay. Agile. Cool. So, so I think one of the things I think is so cool about the fact that they've kind of switched the way that it, because there, there used to be a coaching clinic, but this is meant to be a little bit different in that it's more than just how do I do X, Y, and Z. It's, oh my God, this part sucks and I can't take it anymore. I don't know what to do. <laughs> yes. So yes. this gives people a chance to get some maybe coaching or advice, but in a different Approach. A different Maybe approach. like the change that they're going through. Yes. Oh, one of the guys actually sat down and he goes, I have three questions for you. And each one I want to know, am I insane or not? And so he asked, you know, questions about how his organization was working, and he just needed somebody to, to say, listen. no, you're not oh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Your take is actually more aligned with how Agile kind of works in, quote, unquote, the real world. Do you find, I find that happens in class. A lot of people, oh, yeah. will, I'll be like, yeah, that's just, that's just dumb and wrong. <laughs> what they're doing is not going to work. And they feel so, like, oh. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. It's wrong doesn't matter. They're just happy to know that it's not just and It's like belonging to your tribe, right? Yeah. So you start to feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. And I think a lot of it is we're far enough along the adoption curve with Agile now that everybody has some experience and they've gotten it in different places. Yeah. And now you put together a new company with these this mismatch of, of experiences from previous companies and weird things happen. Yeah. So we have... <laughs> Definitely Frank and Agile. Yes. So it's, and it can be a monster sometimes. Yeah. All right. So. Yes. Before we talk about monsters, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about play. Let's talk about play. So Laura has two sessions, sessions this week on Wednesday at 1045, the power of play coaching teams to play at work. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? 
So I'm a big believer in using games to teach and to coach because okay. it creates a metaphor for a group to experience something uh, in a safe environment. So you can create that, that sense of psychological safety that okay. we talk about. Uh, and the team can do something in a space where if they fail, they can learn from it, but they haven't endangered their livelihood or their They're product or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that was the place that I was coming from. And honestly, when I first started out, I thought games, serious games to teach was a good thing. Okay. But I thought that uh, a team that went and played foosball in the break room was basically just taking a break. Yeah. And last year I ran across a book by um, Stuart Young called, no, not Stuart Young, Stuart Brown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Stuart Brown, and, he, and it's, it's called Play. And there's the National Institute of Play. So we Americans wow. think it's so important to play that we actually have an organization who's dedicated to it. And this guy has done a ton of research into how do we play, what is the value of play, and okay. it's very compelling that play helps catalyze a person's creativity, their innovation, and actually their longevity. So as an adult, right. if you have ways to play in your life, you will live longer than someone who is all about the work and not about the play. So how do you define play? So play is whatever it is that is quote unquote fun to you. Okay. It's how you choose to spend your free time. Okay. And so it doesn't I, this is the thing I want to check in with you on. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not work. Right. Work could be play for someone, too. Work could be play for someone, too. And it, it could be a different kind of play. Because okay. there's some people who play by creating something. And I think for a lot of software developers who just don't want to be in the meetings and just want to be creating code, who want to be doing their craft, yeah. It's about that creation, and that actually is part of the play for them, is that creative moment, as much as also for, say, graphic designers or artists or things like that. Do you think that the developers that you know see themselves as being creatives in the same way that a graphic designer would see themselves as being creative? I see it more and more. Okay. I see a, a recognition, and I think the, the watershed moment is as managers are starting to understand that. Because I think you and I both probably have the history of managers thinking, well, how hard can it be? It's lines of code, it's typing, it's just... Monkeys it's, could do it. Monkeys could do it. It was the concept of software development as a manufacturing process. Yeah. And now people are starting to understand. As opposed that, to the creatives. As opposed to creative, <laughs> as opposed to the craft of software. Okay. And for me, I really uh, earned an appreciation for it because years ago I uh, managed a, a group in the kernel lab for HPUX for Hewlett Packard. Okay. And I, I was dangerous. I was managing like the engineering services for the people who were doing that work. Okay. And they said, now listen, you have to understand, if we can come up with an algorithm that shaves a hundredth of a second off of something at the operating system level, it is humongous in terms of performance for the company, yeah. for, for the operating system. And they were interested in the elegance of what they were doing, the craft of what they yeah. were doing. And it was a bragging right in terms of could you come up with the best a way to do solution. something. Yes. It's, I have a friend who's a mathematician and I made a comment one time about math not being creative and she was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> and I had just never put that together because I just saw it as a bunch of rules but 
the way of creative problem solving with the kind of oh, math that yeah. she's doing. And there's a connection between people who are musicians and people who are good at mathematics. So I studied classical piano as a kid. Yeah. And the ability to play a Bach four-part fugue and hold four lines of melody in your, your mind at the same time, giving each one equal emphasis, yeah. has a lot to do with the ability to manage mathematics and numbers and see the progression of, of a math problem. Wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and so you're also going to talk, I just want to touch on this because we discussed this briefly about different types of people, how would you describe it, the different ways people play? Different ways people play. In his book, um, Dr. Brown talks about the play personalities and okay. he, he describes eight different ways that people play. Okay. And what I'm finding is we have more and more conscious right, consciousness right now about all of the different kinds of diversity you can have on a team, you know, from gender and race and, you know, where people are from, all different kinds of diversity. This is another kind of diversity. If you honor play and understand that it's something that can actually catalyze a team into that flow state of great satisfaction and great productivity, yeah. how I play can differ from how you play. And we can still play together. And we can still play together. And we should probably honor each other's ways of playing because there's the people who grew up playing with Lego yeah. who maybe now are that creator that's a personality type that's different from the person who's a storyteller or a person who's a joker and so on a average agile team you're probably going to have all the personality types represented and then you'll un and by understanding these play personalities you'll understand better what it is that brings satisfaction and enjoyment for different people on the team. So it's like cross-functional in a different direction. It's cross-functional in a different direction. That's very cool. Yeah. All right, so this one is at 1045 on Wednesday, and now we're going to talk about climate. Oh. This is the one yes. I'm excited. I'm, I mean, I was excited <laughs> about the last one, but I'm extra excited about this one. So Thursday, 1045, it's not just about culture, co-creating an awesome, agile climate in an imperfect world. Yes. So. Yes. What do you mean what by climate? Is yeah. So this, this talk all came out of uh, about this time last year. I was actually feeling kind of burned out in the Agile group, right. you know, because we go to these conferences and it's really awesome. It's like a family reunion. You yeah. see people so that you, friends. you see your friends. You Make some bad ideas. decisions, limit yeah. your career. Drink a, a few margaritas, life is good. And I started to look for other opportunities to go outside of the Agile world and, okay. and, and check out other things and see what I could bring back. So I went to this uh, little mini conference in the Bay Area on culture. Okay. I was the only Agilist in the room. And there was this guy named Sean Murphy who has a book out called The Optimistic Workplace. Okay. And he talked about climate and culture. And climate is the personality of an organization. It's the way things are done around here. Okay. It tends to be very slow moving and it takes a while to shift. And there's a lot of talk right now in the Agile community about the importance of culture and how the change tends to need to come from the top and that it takes a while. Okay. Sean brought up the idea of climate being something that is more inherent in a small group. He was talking about small groups of people and how they work like together. Teams. And I said, aha, he means agile teams. Yeah, there you go. And what he talked about was there's studies from the Hayes group that say that a person's enjoyment and job satisfaction, 70% of that comes from their immediate group of people that they work with. Okay. So from their manager in the traditional sense, from their right. scrum team or their agile team in the world that you and I swim in, right? 
And to me, that was a very empowering thought that here in this you know, universe of, of, of a of large enterprise culture, you could have teams that decide to create their own climate that okay. supports them and their values. And so I started investigating, well, what does that mean and how can you shift it? How could you create a team's climate? Because okay. I know you know. You've been around the block a couple of times, just like me. Yeah. You've walked into toxic enterprises where you go, oh my God, <laughs> this culture In is not out. a good place. Yeah. And even within there, there will be these little pockets of teams that are that happy. That are happy, yeah. that get work done, that have figured not, out. Not happy in a dysfunctional like no. pain way, but actually happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're actually thriving in spite of some of what's going on. And I started connecting the dots, and it's like, this is really cool because for us to shift the enterprise culture, if you create enough of these pockets, you start to shift it, and it doesn't always have to only come from top down. Okay. The group can actually start to affect it. So I want to ask, I'm going to say something to you that I say in my classes, and with all this in mind, I'd like you to respond. So okay. one of the things I will often say is that as a scrum master, mm -hmm. it is your job to create a culture of safety where your team can be open about things and share whatever they need to share. And that is my way of saying, it's on your watch, you're in charge of this, make it happen. But what you're saying is it's a whole. It's interesting because it, it, it's, it's, it's like you and I share a brain sometimes, which is a sometimes. scary thought. And then one of us is just sitting there like, uh, Oh, he's got custody today. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing is to me, the first step of creating a really great team culture yeah. is having that place of, of psychological safety. Okay. And I do think the scrum master is a person who needs to really like promote it. Okay. But, it is everyone's responsibility at some level because as a scrum master, if I'm trying to help create a sense of, of team safety and psychological safety, and there's one you know outlier person who doesn't Just honor that, everything. then they could ruin everything. So almost like the scrum master one. kind of like sets up the space and they have to come in and fill that space. Yes, okay. yes, and it's their choice on how they fill that space. So if I'm in a toxic environment, mm -hmm. um, and I want the climate to be different. Is there guidance on how to change that, other than going home and working on my resume? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, so can, can it be transformed? It can be transformed. It's a, it's a team decision. Okay. And I think even if the choice ultimately is for you to go home and, and update your resume, uh, there is an aspect of bloom where you're planted because sometimes in those moments of chaos and toxicity, there are opportunities. Great things happen sometimes, yeah. right? Um, and there's certainly for me some things I would do over if I had my career to, to do over from that perspective. But don't, don't you think in terms of galvanizing a team, sometimes the us versus them thing can be very powerful? Yes, yes. It's, a, it's almost like the old MASH um, reruns of that little you know, hospital unit surviving in Vietnam despite all of the craziness that was going on yes. and, and the, you know, the, the U.S. Um, leadership as much as some of the things that happened yeah. uh, with, in Vietnam. They had created a, a climate that supported themselves yeah. and they were sad to see it end. Just like we were. I mean, probably happy to leave, but sad. Yeah, home, yeah. But sad to leave it. So you mentioned a word that I, I wrote down when you said it because I was thinking about something. So choice. One of the things that I will often comment on is like, if you're in an unhealthy environment, mm -hmm. you're choosing every day to mm -hmm. go be in that environment. I yes. think it's important for us to take responsibility for the fact that 
it's we can't especially I think in Agile mm -hmm. it's not okay to be a victim and say they're making me do this I have to be here you can do something else you can go yes. be somewhere more healthy but that's yes. very scary it's very scary and it's interesting uh, when you talk to Agile coaches in particular you are paid to go in and help organizations change and transform mm -hmm. and a lot of times you have to go into a swamp and help help deal with the alligators in the swamp yeah. and if there were no alligators they might not need you. We'd all be you. out of work. We'd all be out <laughs> that's, of work. That's so, funny when people you know, complain about it. Like, yeah, it's more work. Yeah. <laughs> now, that said, I think it's really important for everyone to understand the, the term of, of a threshold. So from a psycholo okay. psychological perspective, we all have a threshold. If you had everything that you that was important to you about your work, everything that you loved about your work, there's still this probably something that if it happened would have you say just almost immediately, I'm done with this, I'm out of here. That's a threshold. Yeah. Okay. Um, for, for a lot of people that has to do with some break in respect, break in um, integrity, um, being disrespected from maybe a discrimination perspective, there's different things about that. But Set for most people, people yeah, yeah, it's usually one or two things. You cross this line, I don't care, I'm done. And you need to be aware of that. But how do you, I think, don't you think a lot of people don't even know where the line is? Until, yeah, and until it's, like, you've got to think about that. Yeah. Once you know that, there's a lot of space between that threshold and I'm really happy. And you, okay. like you said, you're choosing to be in that space. Yeah. And how you choose to look at that situation can either make it or break it. Um, I took a little break um, some years ago out of high tech and actually did real estate investing, got my real estate okay. license, because how hard could it be, got into doing sales. And so one of the beautiful things about sales is they're very focused on professional and personal development, mm -hmm. because if you're not clear in who you are, it's really hard to be a good salesperson. Yeah. So there was one time in a training I heard a guy talk about how he had learned that you it's your choice how everything that happens to you how you view it and yeah. he said I was on my way to a listing appointment and I was it was a big house and I was gonna get this listing and I was gonna make 50 grand and it was gonna be awesome all except I got a flat tire and he goes old me would have said blankety blankety blank flat tire missing the appointment gonna miss out this is awful he said I had to choose how I reacted to that. I chose okay. a different reaction. He goes, what happened was the tow truck driver was looking to sell a duplex and buy a house. He got both of those deals. He still got a chance to make his listing presentation and he got that deal. Wow. And so he said because he was in a space that was cool, calm, centered, and he could like build rapport with people, yeah. it actually turned out better than the day that he had envisioned. Okay, and, I, 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 and the skeptic in me wants to say, oh, well, it just, oh, yeah, how the universe didn't yeah. set that up that way. That no, I don't think the universe didn't, but if, if I'm in a... If he had a bad attitude, it probably wouldn't if have been If I'm sales. in a bitchy mood, right. I'm not going to go out there and maybe strike up a conversation with someone who really needs to know me, I need to know them, and that we might be lifelong buddies and partners and whatever. Um, but if I go out there and I'm in a different mood, who knows who I might meet yeah. and where it might lead. So I want to go back to the climate thing. I'll okay. Take this with us. So, oh yeah. Um, and I, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm just going to say this extreme <laughs> opinion about this to see how you react. So when you talk about climate and trying to have a healthier climate, you're not saying, I'm assuming that everybody should just be like, oh, it's great, you know. 
My, no. my shoes just caught on fire. Oh, well, that's, that's a no, blessing. It's all good. It's, everything's wonderful. It's not. No. Because some stuff sucks. Oh, yes. Yes. But it's as a team, how do you react to that? Okay. So there's two pieces to my talk. One part is understanding the values of the team. And I don't mean the Agile Manifesto values. I don't mean the Scrum values. I don't mean the your corporation put it on the walls values. Dave Teams Pryor. Values, right. Dave, Dave Pryor has a set of values that are important to you about yeah. your work. So it's, and the question that you ask yourself is what is important to me about my work? And no censoring, no wordsmithing, whatever, you start that list. And then you start lay, laying it out in terms of, there's, you rank order it, just like your backlog. Okay. And you can come up with what's the most important thing to me, what's the next most important thing in that list. And if you've got a team that has that psychological safety that we talked about, yeah. You can have a hour discussion where people brainstorm that, and then we each share what is the four or five top values for me for what's important to me about my work. And you share yours, and the next person shares theirs. And we don't try to combine it. The only goal is to understand what is important to you about your work. Yeah. And your top five is, in essence, your operating system for, for your work. It okay. is the things that it's it's like the non-negotiable. It's what makes you tick. The table stakes, yeah. Yeah, like for me, my top one is it changes words sometimes. Right now, I'm using the word pono, which is a Hawaiian word. And what it means is right with myself, right with you, and right with the world. Okay. It's a version of integrity. Sure. And it's the most important thing to me. And then there's, you know, and funds in there and, you know, learning and different things like that. So okay. when I share that with my team, they start to understand why I love going to conference, conferences and different right. things like that. So as a team, when we start to have these tough times, we know how to cover each other's backs because we know what's important. For okay. example, I would be surprised if in your top five, there's something in what's important to you about your work, having a tie into providing for your family and being oh, there for your family. Yeah. And so, I don't have kids, you have kids. Mm -hmm. So if we're a team, team teammates, there might be a place where on a Sunday, I do something that normally well, you might do. And that's, that's what I was yes. gonna ask you next. I was talking with Sally Ann about neurodiversity and you want yeah. diverse kinds of people, but we might not all share the exact same top yes. five, but that's a strength as well because yes. it allows us to take care of each other. And, the, and, and, and it's never the point to come up with the teams list or something like right. that, but it's an awareness between each other of us. It's a mindfulness of what's important because, and we need that psychological safety because there's a level of vulnerability to say, you know, what's really important to me about my work? Yeah. When you get to that top five, and it's not the things that are usually at the top of your that's, that's mind. That's the other thing I was going to say. Yeah. Whatever you want to write down, it's probably not those. It's yeah. the other ones you're going to get to later. So yeah. if, they, if someone comes to my session, we're going to go through this exercise. And what I've taught folks is you have to ask this question three times. Because okay. the things that are really the top of the list are very core to you. And your unconscious may not offer it up yeah. at, at the first. And whatever someone says is right. So for me, okay. um, in my top five is the idea of abundance. And that is for me how I say money because I want, oh, okay. I want to come from a perspective of, I want to create things where Laura has toys and Laura has security and things like that, yeah. but I also want abundance for you. 
Okay. Now you might have a different, a totally different way of saying um, money is important. I, I, I would say I have a different way of saying abundance. Okay. My wife and I talk about this. Like, oh, cool. Um, there are ways that I could make significantly more money if I wanted to, mm -hmm. but we've had this conversation. That we don't live our lives that way. Like we, yes. We know what we want. We know what we need. That's what we ask for. We don't yes. ask for more because we, we're going to do other things. Yes. And it's a choice. It's a value system. It's a value system. Yeah. And if we were going to be business partners, it would be very useful for us to be aligned on that. And for me to hear you to and your words right? explain that. Yeah. Because then I understand you know, where you're coming from. Yeah. And we can make decisions kind of on the behalf of each other awareness. with that in mind. That's awesome. So this one is going to be Thursday at 1045. Thursday at 1045. Okay. And I'm trying to remember, you've got Dublin. We should talk, oh. mention Dublin really Oh, quick. yes. Yeah. So what are you going to be doing in Dublin? In Dublin, we're going to be talking about saying yes to no. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> I so I, I actually contacted her a few weeks ago yes. because I saw the title. I was like, "Oh, yay! <laughs> I get to say no again." Yes, yes. because it, it's it's interesting. I think the agile community is so wired to say yes and and to be agents of possibility and agents of growth and hope. And sometimes we take that a little bit too far and we say yes to too many things and then we can't deliver. Yeah. And that's not good either. Yeah. So this grew out of some product owners who wanted to say yes to everything at the company that I'm consulting with right now. Okay. And the more we talked about it, the more I came to understand this is a fairly widespread problem. Yes. And it's actually multi-level. I mean, a lot of companies have a culture that supports this. Then on top of that, that expects it, that, expects it yeah. that rewards it because we want to be agents of possibility. Uh, then, uh, especially in the product owner space, if your backlog isn't in good order, you can't have the conversation about, yes, Dave, I understand yeah. you would like to do this. Where does this fit in terms of the other priorities we have? Yeah. So if you just are, are behind in that, that can cause it's problems. see what's going on. And then the other part is how do you say it and how do you say it gracefully to the manager or the stakeholder and how do you coach that other person to receive it? So yeah, we're going to talk cool. about all three of those because okay. I think it's really important. That sounds awesome. I wish I was going to, well, I, I wish I was going to Dublin, but I, I'm going to be happy to be with my kid on Halloween. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how the <laughs> Irish do Halloween. With lots of beer. I'm with sure. lots of beer. There's a rumor that we will be going to Guinness. So It's awesome. I am. It's really, really cool. <laughs> I, yeah, it's really neat. I have no doubt. Cool. Well, thank you for coming by and enjoy oh, the rest welcome. of the show. Thank you. Go see Laura Sessions. Thank you. Thanks.